And that haunted me that he did not survive. And it was something which was very, once again, a very visceral response. It was something I said, I need to learn more about this trauma stuff. I personally need to do better. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon, and I'm joined by Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist. Colonel Kirby Gross is a trauma surgeon who joined the Army immediately following the attacks on September 11, 2001, at 48 years old. He had a thriving general surgery practice and sought to serve his country following the 9-11 attacks. He has served over 20 years in the Army, deploying 10 times, totaling over five and a half years, with deployments spanning the entire spectrum of military expeditionary surgical locations. He discusses his largely clinical career in the Army and how he developed himself to become an expert expeditionary surgeon. Find out more by visiting our website at wardocspodcast.com. Welcome to Wardocs. In this episode, we are pleased to have with us Colonel Dr. Kirby Gross, who is a trauma surgeon with 10 deployments totaling over five and a half years. Kirby, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. It's quite an honor to have a chance to do this actually while we're deployed. So, Colonel Gross, you are now 68 years old, and you joined the military 20 years ago when you took your oath of office at 48 years of age. We usually have to ask our guests at the end to tell us about their transition to civilian practice, but you have the opposite as you transition from civilian practice to the military. Tell us about your career before the Army. I was in general surgery practice in uh, northern Indiana, specifically Elkhart, Indiana, which is just uh, east of South Bend. I practiced uh, bread and butter general surgery, which included oncology, of course, general surgery, minimally invasive at that time, as advanced as it was. Also, I did uh, trauma, but uh, just a very broad uh, general surgery practice. So what led you to join the military? What was the prompt that made you make that decision? September 11th, 2001. That specific date uh, struck me very significantly, very emotionally. I uh, saw this as an attack on America. And it was even the very first days afterwards, it was apparent there was going to be a response by the United States. And uh, this was an opportunity I did not want to miss to uh, participate and join in the response to to that action. How did that transformation go from civilian practice and all of a sudden now you're in the military practicing as a military surgeon, potentially getting ready to p- deploy? How, how was that transition for you? Well, it was... Uh, Quite a culture shock. Keep in mind, my practice in northern Indiana was very busy, almost too busy in a way, doing quite a few cases. And I came into the Army, and my first assignment was at Blanchfield Army Community Hospital at Fort Campbell. And the clinical pace was dramatically slower. The pace, very slow. The focus on on providing uh, clinical care was not high. The Focus was uh, more on the administrative efforts, and and it was quite a culture shock indeed. And it did take me some uh, time to get used to that difference. On the outside, clinical pace, clinical expertise is most highly valued. When I arrived, I noticed a significant uh, 
a difference. You were there for about a year and then deployed with the 86 Combat Support Hospital in Iraq. Did you feel like you were prepared to do what was going to be required of you to do? I felt prepared, although I was not. That's not an uncommon scenario for folks who don't know what they don't know. I was prepared clinically. My very active practice in the community prepared me to perform as a surgeon, although trauma was not my primary focus of my clinical practice. Certainly having a very active clinical practice and being able to operate with some degree of facility certainly prepared me well well clinically. What I was not prepared for was the culture, the some of the differences in focus. However, I, in spite of not totally integrating the culture of the Army, was able to perform with a modicum of success in that regard. Clinically, I did well, at least in my estimation. Administratively, I survived, but certainly I learned a huge amount. I learned a huge amount about the difference between the officer and enlisted ranks, and I learned also about the various training concepts, the difference between officer and enlisted. So you and I have spent a bit of time together, and one of the things that I found very interesting was your story about 9-11 and joining the Army. Can you tell us where you were on 9-11, what the circumstances were, and when you then went and contacted the Army about joining? I was in my office, and the office personnel informed me that there had been one plane which had crashed in New York City. Then at the time, thought, well, this is a mishap. Then the second aircraft impacted the Twin Towers, and then it was very clear something was awry, and then followed that by the third aircraft that struck the Pentagon. So it was very clear that on that day, the world had changed. Now, this impacted me, as I mentioned, fairly significantly, more of a visceral response. And even that very first day, it was apparent that perpetrators, there would be a response by the United States government. And uh, I told myself I would choose to participate. The very next day, I contacted Army Recruiting. At the time, I didn't know there was a difference between Army Recruiting and Army Healthcare Recruiting. The Army Recruiters had gotten me in touch with Army Healthcare Recruiting. And the very next day, there were two Army Healthcare Recruiters in my office, which prompted the recruitment process. I'd had a long interest in military surgery, and part prompted my father was in the Army in the World War II era. And I did my general surgery training at Indiana University Medical Center in Indianapolis. And we had a significant military influence. The chairman of the Department of Surgery at Indiana University when I was an intern was Dr. Jessup. And Dr. Jessup, uh, as a young man, as an enlisted Marine, was on the uh, USS Missouri, when the armistice was signed with the Japanese. And Dr. Jessup, he had a department of surgery, which was very structured. One of his faculty members was Dr. James Madura, who is my true surgical mentor. And Dr. Madura would describe his experience as a surgeon in Vietnam. Dr. Madura was a uh, trainee at Ohio State University. And after one year internship, then went to Vietnam and spent a year in Vietnam. And the stories of the cases and his experience struck me and uh, the large cases and uh, also the fact that there was a surgeon who'd only finished one year of training was actually providing care in Vietnam struck me as something which 
was a bit unusual, something which I felt that I could contribute to the U.S. military medical response. And that's what prompted me to, another reason which prompted me to uh, seek to participate in the United States response. What led you to join the Army as opposed to the Navy or Air Force? My father uh, was uh, in the Army in the World War II era. That was the biggest influence. But then also uh, Dr. Madura was uh, a huge influence. Not that we ever spoke about me making this decision, but his descriptions, he was in the Army. Also became fairly clear this would be a more of a land-based effort early on. So that's what helped sway my decision. So we mentioned that you had been with the 86th Combat Support Hospital in Iraq, and then two years later you deployed with the 772nd Forward Surgical Team as their commander. You mentioned that there were things that you knew but then there was a lot that you didn't know. Can you elaborate on those experiences that you weren't expecting and how you ended up handling those circumstances? Well, I learned quite a bit during my first deployment. I think I actually learned more during my second deployment as commander of the forward surgical team. Nothing like having that responsibility on your shoulders to make you a fast learner. The big thing I learned was the difference between the learning processes of our soldiers and our officers. It was very clear that the training model is much more experiential for our enlisted. I remember during my first weeks as the FST commander wanting to make some points with my enlisted soldiers, and we would be sitting there, I'd be presenting things, speaking, going over some concepts, and the soldiers, after about half hour, could hardly sit still. Because the training model for our enlisted is quite a bit different than the, the didactics. And, of course, that's myself going directly from college to, to medical school. It was a much different, more of a didactic process. So that was one thing I learned. And actually, the enlisted training model is more effective for our soldiers. It works very, very well. So this was one of the things I learned. And I uh, recognized the difference as I work with the officers and and with our enlisted. I also recognized early on that the key to success would be the engagement of our uh, team members. And the officers, for example, I recognized that if they objected to a decision, they might not necessarily be happy with it, but I also knew they would engage. They would conduct the mission and execute with full zeal and effort. However, I noticed that particularly some of the junior members, they would become disenfranchised and withdraw and would not be fully engaged. So one of the key points, as I explained to my officers, was if there was a point of debate or discussion, I would always fall on the side of the enlisted because I recognized the officers would always execute, but a disenfranchised or less engaged junior enlisted, had a very critical role on the team, but might not execute. Did you find that you had any clinical experiences that you encountered that you maybe weren't expecting when you deployed for the first time? The first deployment, the clinical experience struck me in terms of the sheer numbers. During first the deployment, we had one mass casualty event of receiving 91 patients in an hour. Now, granted, their uh, injury severity scores were not high, but 
seeing that many casualties arrive at once was certainly um, not something I'd experienced in the past. However, the triage, which we had learned, preparation for deployment, did work very effectively. And what was very remarkable about that specific event was our junior soldiers, how they stepped up. And it was very remarkable also to see how those individuals who you would think would have engaged and participated with a good deal of eagerness actually fell to the wayside. It was very interesting to see how during those, when really challenged, how people's skills and talents become apparent. You deployed in multiple different roles primarily as a general surgeon, but at different roles of facilities. So a role two, which for our listeners is a much more forward unit, smaller with less resources, less capability, but has some surgical capability. And an example would be forward surgical team. And you also deployed with the combat support hospital, which has a lot more people, a lot more resources. What do you see as the difference in preparation and skills needed as a surgeon to function well in either of those environments? Well, certainly the concept of an expeditionary surgeon would serve one well in either environment, but more specifically the role two. As you described, the resources at a role two the number of personnel, the number of surgeons are not as many. So having a surgeon who is um, skilled in trauma, but also having surgical critical care skills, certainly there are also emergency general surgery topics, which processes which develop in a theater of operations. The expeditionary surgeon also takes on with training can perform some rudimentary orthopedic uh, procedures, for example, external fixations, aggressive debridements, and also subsequent to that initial era of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, then we have actually added some rudimentary neurosurgical skills, damage control craniotomies, for example. So the idea of the expeditionary surgeon, one who has skill set is not confined the typical civilian models, something which a surgeon would be comfortable with extremity injuries and certainly assessing patients with a severe head injury and even engaging. Now, those are the sort of skills which can be trained and which optimally would be available at the role twos. At the role threes, certainly there's a wider variety of specialties available. We have orthopedic surgeons at the role threes where Colonel Causey and I are at at this moment. We have neurosurgery. We also have ENT surgeons as well as ophthalmologists, as well as Wayne, a vascular surgeon. And that's a very nice luxury to have at the role threes. So was there any experiences in your early time in the military that led you to decide to pursue further training in trauma? because you went on to do a fellowship or extra training at Vanderbilt. Was there anything that you experienced in your deployments that said, I need to have extra training? Yes, uh, a very specific event. In 2005, during a deployment as the FST commander, our team was co-located with a combat support hospital. And there was a service member who came in who did not survive. And that haunted me that he did not survive. And it was something which was a very, once again, a very visceral response. 
It was something I said, I need to learn more about this trauma stuff. I personally need to do better. At the time, it was 2005, I was in Baghdad. One of the surgeons with the combat support hospital with which we were co-located was John Holcomb. And Colonel Holcomb was quite a influence on me. This was an individual who was laser-focused on improving combat casualty care. And he was an individual who challenged all of the surgeons to even improve our performance. And the vibrant atmosphere of continually seeking to improve outcomes, data collection, adding to the body of knowledge of combat casualty care was inspiring to me. And that was a major factor in me seeking additional training in trauma. And just to follow up on the service member who died, one of the things that we learned over several years in the conflict was the value of mortality reviews and Armed Forces Medical Examiners and the trauma surgical community, the Joint Trauma System, began to work very closely. And Colonel Brian Eastridge reviewed the first 4,596 deaths. And we learned a lot about how to improve combat casualty care by those mortality reviews. So I knew this association with the postmortems were being conducted. And that service member who I took care of in 2005 it took me 10 years to call Armed Forces Medical Examiner to find the specific fatal injuries. And the sort of relief I had to learn that it was a unpreventable death was really profound to me. Just to follow up on that story that with that specific event, that specific casualties, what had a significant impact on me seeking to pursue additional training. I was very fortunate, as you described a bit earlier, my assignment was at Fort Campbell. And Fort Campbell is maybe 40 minutes away from Nashville, of course, Vanderbilt University. When I was initially assigned to Fort Campbell, it was clear that the U.S. response to terrorist attack of September 11th would uh, be expanded. And I knew that I would be deployed soon. So I began going to Vanderbilt, Department of Surgery Grand Rounds, got to know the trauma surgeons, and eventually would spend time on my own, not off-duty employment, merely to observe and uh, learn more about trauma because I knew I would soon be deployed. And the uh, Division of Trauma at Vanderbilt welcomed me in, and Dr. John Morris, who was division chief at the time, was very gracious and let me uh, join them just in an observing capacity. Then after this uh, deployment in 2005, 2006, which really stimulated my interest in trauma, that's why I decided I would apply for two years to study trauma. I was then fortunate enough to follow up with my colleagues at Vanderbilt who permitted me to join them for two-year fellowship. You started your first day on active duty, July 4th of 2002, and then you started your fellowship probably close to July 1st of 2008. What was it like starting the Army at 48 and then going on to have another fellowship when you were in your mid-50s? It was great. Nothing like being the oldest trauma fellow in history, but... It was a very good experience at Vanderbilt. I had a fantastic time. One feature of military surgeon applicants for uh, fellowships are that our civilian fellowship directors know that applicants are typically well-behaved. We won't cause much trouble. But also 
having someone uh, with decades of operating experience, they knew I could be trusted in the operating room. So it was a great opportunity for me to learn more about the concepts and the processes, trauma care, which was just so educational for me. One of the things I learned from Dr. Holcomb was not just the specific operative, but also the idea of the system, how the trauma surgeon certainly has a very active role in that individual trauma patient's care, but but certainly we just have a small piece of the entire trauma system, the pre-hospital, the prevention, and then understanding the importance of data collection and ongoing performance improvement and inspiring others and, and trying to even, as a trauma fellow, recognizing the importance of the residents and the, the medical students to inspire them to improve their performance. So that experience at Vanderbilt even further committed me to the practice of trauma and improving specifically combat trauma. After your fellowship, things in Iraq are starting to wind down a little bit as far as op tempo, but then you had the opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, and you went to Fab Fenty in Jalalabad. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there deployed in Afghanistan and the differences between that theater and Iraq? I experienced it in Afghanistan in 2010 to 2011 was a bit different. The nice thing about that experience on a roll, too, was I was not the commander. We had an outstanding orthopedic PA who was the commander of the team, so I did not have some of those administrative things to deal with, but we had a great relationship. He let the clinical leadership up to me, and he had the administrative uh, leadership. The differences between uh, the two theaters, the Patients we would see in Iraq, of course, this 2003-2005 deployments, we were starting to see some of the specific weaponry, the IEDs, the shape charges, which were certainly having a significant impact on our relatively unarmored Humvees. By the time we got to Afghanistan, the vehicles had improved significantly, which really had an impact on the wounding pattern. There would be successful or enemy successful IED strikes, which resulted in casualties, and we also had small arms fire. We, specifically at FOB Fenty at the time, we did not see a large amount of dismounted complex blast injuries because in that area, the warfighters would patrol typically in a mounted fashion in a vehicle rather than a, a foot patrol. So there were some differences, but I think one thing that was noticeable, the difference between uh, the initial deployments in Iraq 2003-2005 to 2010 was our damage control resuscitation. Protocols had changed very significantly. And early on in the war, we very first deployments still using a fair amount of crystalloid then 2005 with Colonel Holcomb's strong influence uh, using the one-to-one-to-one. And then in Fab Venti using whole blood. I recall having uh, one specific event. We had two soldiers who were wounded side-by-side in the Roll 2, and uh, we had walking blood banks for each of them. And we uh, used a total of 50 units of uh, fresh whole blood that evening, 20 for one of the casualties and 30 for the other. And that was such a huge advance and just the opportunity to have fresh, warm, whole blood available, no doubt contributed to the survivorship of both of those. So I think the big thing that struck me was our resuscitation uh, protocols, how much they'd advanced 
over that period of time. The next phase of your career was a period of time when you started working closer in the trauma system itself. So that was the Joint Theater Trauma System Director for the U.S. Army Central Command. And we actually interviewed Dr. Stacy Shackelford in our fourth episode, and she referenced a time in which she took that position over from you. But you also then had the position as the director of the Joint Trauma System and then went back again to do the Joint Theater Trauma System Directorship for Central Command. Tell us about your understanding at that point now that you'd finished the fellowship and how you used your trauma training and systems training to best accomplish the mission of the military medicine at that point in your career. Well, the chance to serve as a Joint Theater Trauma System Director uh, really helped pull together those features and lessons I served at Vanderbilt and Dr. Holcomb. Being in a role where things were 2012, things were starting to slow down a bit in theater. However, at the time, we still had between 20 and 25 Roll 2s and had a chance to actually visit 20 of those Roll 2s. And some of the big things I took away from that experience, you know, certainly there was a systems concepts, the idea of ensuring every combat casualties care was documented and every document was then submitted to the registry so we could improve future combat casualty care. But one of the things that really struck me specifically about visiting those 20 Roll 2s was that at each of the sites, there was a clinical champion, someone who really ensured that optimal combat casualty care was being conducted. That person may not have, oftentimes was not the commander. Oftentimes, usually it was a surgeon, but not always. Sometimes there is a high-speed CRNA who actually led the charge to ensure the clinical practice guidelines were being followed. But it was very clear that those high-performing teams, there was uh, someone on the team that full well recognized that the true metrics of a high-functioning deployed role two was that of clinical outcome. And uh, someone who could see through some of the administrative morass and recognized truly we were going to be measured on our outcomes. Tell us about the difference between the position of the Joint Theater Trauma System Director for Central Command and the Director of the Joint Trauma System. Well, the Joint Theater Trauma System, that was a position, a deployed position. As the Joint Theater Trauma System Director, I answered to the CENTCOM surgeon. And of course, the CENTCOM surgeon answered CENTCOM commander. So I would advise the CENTCOM surgeon on all things combat casualty care related. And of course, that involved viewing the combat casualty care stats, identifying any potential relocation of assets, keeping the CENTCOM surgeon up to date on new innovations or new concepts in combat casualty care that was coming from the research labs back in States. So that was a, a deployed position where we could really ensure those lessons were passed along to the CENTCOM surgeon and the CENTCOM commander could then engage and ensure those lessons. One of the, the highlights of serving as JTTS director was something which was championed by the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care was, of course, the TCCC guidelines. And I recall one specific event where the a CENTCOM commander, General Mattis, identified that tactical combat casualty care is the standard for point of injury. And that's an example of the leadership being informed of the value and mandating that that be the 
standard of care that were pre-hospital. Now, then we think about the joint trauma system, Director. The, the joint trauma system is physically located in San Antonio. And a bit of history about the joint trauma system is this was uh, initially envisioned by Dr. Holt, name which runs consistently through the improvement of combat casualty care. Dr. Holcomb was the commander of the Army Institute of Surgical Research at the onset of hostilities. And Colonel Holcomb was clinically active trauma surgeon at the time, and he was very much engaged with advances in not only combat casualty care, but civilian uh, trauma care. And body of literature had been published in 1999, which identified that mature trauma systems improve outcomes in terms of mortality and morbidity by 25%. And so Colonel Holcomb, this solid body of evidence on the civilian side, said we need to have a trauma system in the DOD. And he, as commander of the Army Institute of Surgical Research, then advocated to the CENTCOM commander, that time Colonel Doug Robb, that the CENTCOM AOR needs to have a deployed trauma system. And to fill in the data, to ensure that the data was captured to provide feedback, established a trauma registry directed by Marianne Spot, who had worked in Pennsylvania and helped set up their trauma registry. Dr. Holcomb brought in these key pieces to set up the trauma system for CENTCOM, knew he had to have some area where that institutional knowledge was housed, and that was the joint trauma system in San Antonio. And that's where the registry, the data abstractors, and also the performance improvement leadership was housed in San Antonio. And had other leaders of the joint trauma system. We had Colonel Holcomb, certainly Don Jenkins was a key leader early on. And the purpose of the joint trauma system was to serve as, once again, that institutional knowledge, uh, almost the, the franchise, if you would, of that knowledge base and to ensure the, the data capture and abstraction would continue uninterrupted. One of the big topics right now is readiness. And how do we make sure that the medical forces that we send over to anywhere in the world are ready to do what they need to do? And you've been very much involved in developing and functioning within training centers. You were part of the, the, the Ryder Trauma Center in Miami. John Holcomb was part of a partnership with Ben Taub. Can you tell us a little bit about those specific efforts with the Army Training Detachment as well as the military and civilian efforts that are going on now. Yes, I've been very fortunate in my Army assignments. Early on, Fort Campbell deployments and then having the opportunity to go to uh, Army Trauma Training Detachment at Miami. The mission of Army Trauma Training Detachment is to actually prepare the Roll 2s forward surgical teams just prior to deployment. So uh, the teams come to Miami. We go through some classrooms, some didactic some exercises, but then also the teams have a chance to work clinically at the Ryder Trauma Center. And the program has been operating consistently since 2002. And one interesting uh, fact about Army Trauma Training Detachment is the memorandum of agreement between University of Miami, Ryder Trauma Center, and the Army was signed on 10 September 2001, which quite ironic in the first uh, team then trained in January of 2002. That program uh, has been very effective in preparing teams to deploy. Uh, certainly, 
over the years, it's varied from two-week to three-week to four-week experience. And it's been invaluable for some of the role twos who just assemble prior to deployment to get to know each other and have some common operating picture. The, the mantra of Army Trauma Training Detachment is training teams to, to work as a team. My next assignment following Army Trauma Training Detachment was and currently is at AMED Military Civilian Trauma Team Training Program in Camden, New Jersey at uh, Cooper University Hospital. And the setup of this training program is a bit different because here at, at Cooper University Hospital, there are individuals who are actually embedded whose full-time military task is to maintain their own readiness. And the thought being that the AMCT3 programs are for those service members to maintain their ultimate clinical readiness by actually providing clinical skills side-by-side with other civilian partners. I think it's critically important to have these civilian partnerships for a couple reasons. Number one, to really maintain our own clinical readiness so we are truly functioning at the expert level. I think that's particularly true, for example, in the environment in which Colonel Causey are right now. The clinical pace currently at our location is very slow, which is very good. However, it's important that individuals arrive to theater completely trained. That is, the experiences in 2003, 2005, where individuals could come to theater and there would be a a subject matter expert co-located who would bring you up to speed. That's not the case now. That is, it's imperative that one will not acquire those skills while deployed. In a relatively slower environment, that's exactly why individuals on the team, whether surgeon, anesthesia, medic, nurses, must have those skills prior to arrival. So I think the the military-civilian partnerships are critically important to maintain those skills. But another feature which is very important about the military-civilian partnerships is the opportunity for us to work with our civilian colleagues who are true leaders. For example, my opportunity to work with Nick Demias at University of Miami, the division chief, is the sort of education and opportunity to learn is not just the clinical expertise and those subtleties, it's to know how to manage a trauma program. And watching our civilian experts as they would conduct their performance improvement, as they would help coach up their junior surgeons or their fellows. Those are lessons if we wish to have a highly functioning trauma systems in the future, we must have the opportunity to develop those leaders, next leaders of the uh, the trauma system. And the same is true with my division chief at Cooper, uh, Dr. John Porter, as he's worked with his program as we look to bring more Army trauma surgeons to Cooper. They'll have a chance to learn from uh, Dr. Porter to ensure that we are developing not only clinical experts, trauma system experts. There's a quote oftentimes heard attributed to Hippocrates, to become a surgeon, follow the army. Well, I think that, I hate to paraphrase Hippocrates, but I think what Hippocrates was saying to become a surgeon, that you need to have experience. Because think back in Hippocrates' era, That was a time where practically only maladies surgeons could have an impact were on injury, right? And so Bakrish is saying, if you want to be good at surgery, you must be where people have opportunities to be 
aided by surgery. I would say now in the United States to become a surgeon, go to the level one trauma center. If we wish to acquire those skills, which we can then optimally bring to a theater of operations. So the Army is big on not only individual training, but collective team training. It sounds like the civilian military partnerships focus a little bit more on the individual skills. How do we ensure that every part of the team, the nurses, the techs, um, everybody is ready to go like they prepare for at Ryder, they come as a team. What, what are we doing to make sure that that entire team is ready when they hit the ground? The AMED, Military Civilian Trauma Team trainings, were certainly in the very early phases, the first couple of years. And uh, indeed, as this program has been visioned by General Crossland, it is for teams. As I describe my experience, we have some individuals who initially have been assigned, but certainly there will be numbered role twos who are assigned to the military civilian sites, the AMCG3 programs. So indeed, that is the vision, and that is actually starting to come to fruition now after the early introduction phase. And I agree completely that the team is truly the basic organization which must be optimal trained to to fully uh, have the best outcomes. But I think the Army program is indeed doing that. You're now almost 20 years into your military career, which started as a lieutenant colonel. So you've had a significant amount of time as a senior officer in Army medicine. If you could improve one area of expeditionary surgery, what would you change and why? One area that Ideally, we'd be able to resolve would be identify who actually owns battlefield medicine. Who is actually that one person or one authority or that one area where battlefield medicine is true resource? It is a concept that I adopted from Dr. Bob Mabry, who is frequently asked that question. But having unity of command in terms of expeditionary medicine. But I don't know exactly how that would happen. How, because you can imagine the leadership challenge we have in the military health system. It's just so complex. We have the the needs for garrison care, the needs for readiness for our beneficiaries, for our service members, that they're optimally prepared and, and very healthy. So that's part of the mission. And of course, as you note by the term expeditionary, been my focus of my career, I full well acknowledge there's a lot more to the military health system mission. And and you can imagine if we just look at the number of patients who receive care in the military health system, you know, it's very difficult to come up with some exact ratio between garrison care and the number of patients who receive care in the military health systems who are combat casualties, various ways to look at that. But the number of patients who receive care in the military health system on a daily basis who are flow from a theater of operations is pretty doggone small, very, very small. But that's the highest visibility and oftentimes the highest acuity type patients we have. So how we would resolve that issue of defining one person who is responsible for battlefield medicine would be a challenge. I really don't have any specific answers. I know that it's something that would certainly be a way to ensure that there would be at least one one place to go to seek to improve it, but we would not want the other missions of the military health system to 
not receive adequate attention. So you mentioned earlier about a specific case that really impacted uh, your future and the way you looked at things. And a lot of surgeons we've talked to remember cases that maybe didn't have a great outcome or the patient died. But do you have any cases that are memorable to you that were just amazing, just that the team was able to take a critically injured patient and save their lives that you say, wow, I just can't believe that happened. That's an amazing thing to be part of. In fact, I described the experience in Jalalabad 2010 having the two casualties side by side, both receiving massive transfusions, both from a walking blood bank. And that was an experience that obviously has stuck with me these past 12 years and was so grateful for the improvements in the resuscitation, specifically having whole blood. And at that time, we were using type-specific whole blood. So our processes have even improved better since since then over these past 10 years. So those are two cases which the team just performed magnificently. And at the small FOB, Bob Fenty, we had a tremendous team. We had, in fact, group on the FOB were the crash rescue team. They were civilian contractors. It was an airstrip there. And of course, as uh, all military airstrips, they need to have fire response. And the civilian crash fire uh, team, we actually trained them up to participate in the walking blood bank. So as the call would go over the big boys for walking blood bank donors, they actually were the ones who organized them and helped uh, participate and made sure all the administrative details were attended to and it just absolutely critical for, you can imagine having walk, two walking blood banks, basically, to ensure all the administrative details were, were on target. You've had the opportunity to deploy multiple times, often near the tip of the spear. Were there any times where you felt in fear for your life or felt in danger and maybe said to yourself, man, I'm too old for this stuff? <laughs> well, uh, actually, I've been very, very fortunate. I've had a chance to deploy a couple times with special operations. In those environments, I may have been closest to the tip of the spear, but my experience in direct support of those units were that I was just in total awe of the professionalism, the skill, and the effectiveness of those warriors in the Joint Special Operations Command. And certainly the proximity to The mission may have been close, but I've actually never felt more secure than being in the company of those warriors. But no, I've been very fortunate not have those uh, specific events, at least stuck with me. But I I do want to, one thing that struck me, obviously, the having a chance to deploy twice in support of those war fighters. And by the way, when I think of my military career, that's truly the highlight. When I having a chance to work among that population and and to see them work. And those experiences were 2006, 2008. I told myself, I have a lot to give back to the Army from watching, seeing how good the DOD can be. The DOD can be just absolutely perfect in execution of mission. And I told myself, that's in part 
the reason for my longevity, I said, I need to make sure those guys get every bit of support they possibly can at all times. Another thing that's really struck me among our war fighters is as we would take care of those casualties who'd say be on dismounted patrol, you can imagine they would be among the population. They could look out in the communities in which they're patrolling and you could imagine they could look eye to eye with those individuals who placed the ID that killed their buddy. You can imagine they're walking in those populations of hostels who would wish them ill, who may indeed have killed one of their buddies. But the discipline of our soldiers, that they would refrain from responding unless approached, it's just remarkable, that sort of discipline. And I think the NCO Corps, ensuring that amount of discipline among our those young men and women who have at their hands, deadly force, you can imagine that takes a tremendous amount of discipline to to refrain from acting out on their anger and frustrations. And I just want to, I think it's very important to recognize, at least ensure that that our warfighter population knows that that's recognized by uh, their healthcare support colleagues. You and I have spent now about three months together working on a daily basis. And One of the things that I think I've really learned from you is that expeditionary surgery is something that takes a bit of a mindset. So you have to think differently than, say, you would as a vascular surgeon in the United States or any anesthesia provider, or you name the specialty in the United States. And one of the things that you've done remarkably well in is you've mentored the junior officers that are for lack of a better term, beneath you, but that, that you're mentoring, that you supervise. And a couple things come to mind in addition to myself, but you brought another surgeon here, a trauma surgeon, Mike Lolliman, who spent a week with you learning as a trauma surgeon how to do the job that you do now better. How is it that you think we should go about ensuring in the military that we frame the surgeon's mindset in the proper way for deployment and What steps can we take to make sure that in a low-volume environment, people can be ready to accomplish the job since you've seen all the spectrums from offensive operations to stabilization operations? First, I think that as a trauma surgeon, we have to full well recognize the lens I learned from Colonel Holcomb was that it's a system and we are part of that system. need as trauma surgeons, as surgeons, we need to help guide and we have a role, but we're just part of the system. I think also it's important, I'd like to think of, we oftentimes speak of the continuum of care from the point of injury, battalion aid station, role one, two, three to four. Certainly this is a perspective I can have as my the glide path of my career is very clear, is that also think of the continuum, not only facially, there's a time. So I, I very much uh, feel that there is a continuum and part of my responsibility is to ensure that those experiences and lessons, which Mike may not have had a chance to deploy in early entry phase operations, but he well might. And so to ensure that those things that I can recall and pass along and make sure they're impressed to the next generation of surgeons. It's very difficult to Try to frame the context for things such as early entry operations without actually experiencing them. And that's one of the challenges that 
I have in trying to, to make the case. And this is exactly why I think the theater of operations where one get those points across much more effectively than, say, back in Garrison, where we would have, say, a future trauma director's course here. We can see those lessons applied, such as trauma registry, see how it's actually done, how teams must sur- submit their records back to the registrar so they can abstract the data actually see the performance improve and execute and uh, kind of walk the land so so much easier to make those cases here rather than the sterile environment of a classroom. So I think that it makes it helpful. One of the keys to adult education is always relevance. And of course, there's nothing more relevant than discussing combat casualty care in a theater of operations, even though the clinical pace may not be quite so quick. You have the unique perspective that many people don't have of being part of the civilian healthcare sector for many years and then joining the military healthcare system. Is there something that you think that the general population should know about military medicine that maybe they don't? What would you want them to know? Just looking back on my story, what brings someone in to form a provider in the military health system? It's a very personal reason. Oftentimes, the reasons that and even for the warfighters who choose to raise their right hand to become members of the Department of Defense, it's a very visceral, it's a very personal reason for which they choose to serve. But also, it's in a similar fashion, that's also what keeps us serving. That is, it's a very personal reason for each individual. So there's one thing our, our, like our population to know is that the individuals who are participating in the military health system are very committed to the mission. We have individuals in the military health system who are committed to the mission in the expeditionary environment, such as myself. And perhaps that's an easier story to tell than our colleagues who are very committed to the garrison delivery, but just as committed to supporting our warfighters and beneficiaries and families. So I I think the, the takeaway is that military health system has very committed personnel and do it for uh, very personal reasons. And of course, that may vary from person to person. They're very effective. In order to continue to serve on active duty after the age of 60, it requires an annual waiver. And for people who may be listening to the podcast, I want to put in perspective one thing, and that that is that you go to the gym every morning at 4.30. You work out harder than pretty much everybody that's in the gym and it's just truly remarkable to see your work ethic. You, you put in so much time for the military. And you did mention that your glide path seemed to be heading in a certain direction. But if they do or do not give you another age waiver, when it comes time for you to finish your time in military service, what is something that you hope people will remember about your military career? That's a good question. It's the last one. I really didn't have a good answer for you right now. But what I remember about my military career I found this very rewarding and the opportunity to support our warfighters, it's an honor and it's very rewarding. Now, what others would take away from my participation in uh, the military health system, I'll leave that to them. Well, I know that you certainly had a positive impact on me. We've been speaking with Army Colonel Dr. Kirby Gross on Wardock's podcast. Kirby, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. And we're all rooting that you get that age waiver approved. (laughs) Thanks. It's been an honor to have a chance to speak to you this afternoon, and seeing the other speakers in your lineup, it, it truly is an honor. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.